Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'll be right back. Let me hang up with the tower. I'll be right with you. All right, good morning again, and if you haven't turned there, go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're continuing our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. Actually, we have, uh, remember, this is like about five-hour study in verse 15 because of the content, 
Uh, there's a lot of content in this verse. So today uh, we'll be looking at the, uh, the fourth uh, of five hours uh, in this study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. So to, uh, today, as you can see on the board, we'll be looking at the, t- uh, the fact that uh, the text of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through chapter 2, verse 10 in this epistle supports the interpretation that racial identity is maintained in the new humanity which is what Paul said in the purpose clause of Ephesians 2.15, as we pointed out. So uh, this, is a, this is a very important study, and uh, it, uh, it's, uh, the new humanity is very significant because uh, it's in union with Christ, and Christ is uh, going to, at his second advent, establish the kingdom on earth. He's going to reign for a thousand years, and the, his bride, the church, is going to reign with him. And so, uh, and this is, so right now, God is calling out a people for himself that will become members of the body of Christ, the future bride of Christ, from every ethnic language group and uh, male, female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, wherever you are and whatever part of the world you're in, you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Holy Spirit, uh, through the baptism Spirit, identifies you with Jesus in his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session at the right hand of the Father. So now uh, you along with Jesus, the church along with Jesus, is going to restore uh, mankind back to its rightful place, which is the rulers of planet Earth, and Satan and his kingdom are presently the uh, ruling this Earth. And remember, we put that out. Second uh, Corinthians four four. Satan is the god of this world. First John five nineteen. The whole world's under his power. The whole world's deceived by him. And also remember, G- uh, Satan offered up the kingdoms of the world to Jesus his temptation. And of course, Jesus emphatically rebuked him with the word of God. And of course, that would have been a legitimate temptation if he didn't have that kind of authority right now. So it's temporary. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, that the church will judge angels, and that's dealing with the elect angels. So a very important study. I, I, you know, before we get into way, I, I, you know, it's been, uh, I, I, we deal with this sometimes down here, and I, I wonder, sometimes I like to discuss things, but just, just a quick thing. We talk about the subject of love. And, uh, you know, we have in our country, uh, especially you know, just speaking to America, is uh you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a homeless situation that's going on in our country, a lot of homeless situations. And uh, so a lot of it, you know, we have, we have my dealing with it over the years. Um, and this is not, I mean, there are people, and I that must preface everything I say, there are people who legitimately are uh, homeless for legitimate reasons. And, uh, and so we're not talking about that. But the majority of cases I've seen of people who are homeless, whether I was in Iowa or Massachusetts, um, and now here in Huntsville is that a lot of the problems that we're having uh, is uh, with, the, with these people who are on the street is because of drug and alcohol problems. Uh, and, and people don't want to face up to this. We have a major drug and alcohol problem in our country and the associated mental illnesses that go with it. And, uh, you know, with doctors prescribing medication for these people, that is uh, really not solving the problem. And so you get so, a lot of these people, I, I, I tell you a story. Uh, a friend of mine who worked at the Pine Street Inn in Boston. A lot of people in New England know what I'm talking about. That's they help people who are, who are you know homeless and people with all kinds of problems. Well, a friend of mine, this is years ago, he was in a band of mine, and he's you know he said to me he worked there five five six years, and he said you know Billy, do you know that 99 I'm not kidding, he's 99 percent of the people that are going the Pine Street Inn don't need our help. They're actually a lot of them are just dropping off off the uh, the, the the grid that actually have very well-off people who have come from money. And he says they're just utilize, they're just uh, exploiting the system. And, you know, so 
I said, you're kidding me. He's like, no, I'm telling you right now. And so he deal with it, dealt with it firsthand. I've talked to other people uh, in the, that try to deal with the situation, the good people. And, uh, and this is this big problem. I, you know, um, for instance, um, give me a perfect example. There's a perfect, uh, perfect example of this and a fa- illustration is that when I, you know, I, when I came here as pastor, I knew they had, they'd have problems every now and then. And they, the people who, these people who had alcohol and drug problems that are homeless, okay, they're vagrants. They pop from city to city. They go to the warm, they go to the rich places to get, you know, move, get money off people and everything. And so they, you know, they, we, you know, we had, uh, I, I, we, we had one time they, they ran the water in our church, the, the, you know, the, the faucets. And we had like, I don't know, 20,000 gallons. They ran it all week. And they were having their, doing whatever they were doing while we weren't there in the church. And we also found in the shed back, where there was a, they were doing their drugs. They had needles back there. So one time, you know, so I came in one morning and they were out, some of them were out there in the back. And I just like, I, you know, all the, the passage struck me. It was like, you know, Jesus got mad at the, uh, in the temple where the money changes and he threw them out. My father's, this is, uh, the temple is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. You made it a den of thieves. Well, these were a den of drug addicts and alcoholics and I threw them out. And I told them, I said, this is where we worship Jesus and you're here desecrating the place and dishonoring the place, and you get your, your beer cans and your, your needles everywhere, you know, get out. So, you know, that you know, people might say, well, that's not, not loving. Oh, sure it is. It is loving, okay? First of all, I'm showing respect for my God, but also, second of all, how am I helping those people? If I, if I you know, see, for instance, people, people like to flip money to people, these people. Well, they're going to run out and go buy some drugs or alcohol, <laughs> you know? So people, I had this friend of mine, and, you know, he likes to give, he's very generous and he likes to give money to people that out here in Huntsville. And I said, well, geez, you know, um, that's great. I said, do you know, you know, so he said, you know, once I give it to him, it's like, you know, it's their problem. No, 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 no. It is your problem. So you have to have, Paul says in Philippians 1, 9, you must have, love must have discernment. You know, so have a little, you're supposed to be, you know, wise as serpent, gentle as dove. You can't be blind to this. People have drug and alcohol problems and you get, I, I've seen enough of it where I can tell. I can know if this guy, this, this woman is a man has got drug problems or alcohol problems. It's pretty obvious. I mean, so then I, I, I would say, well, then you just gave them $200 so they can go out and tie one on. I mean, if you want to buy them lunch and you take them to the rest, you know, hey, well, what do you want? I'll buy it for you. That's fine. But you're just giving it to them and then you don't know what they're going to do with that money and you just basically are uh, enabling them by giving that money. So whatever, you know, people give money to people. We all want to help people. But we also don't want to be stupid and, and, and naive. You know, we want to help people who legitimately need it. So this requires discernment. And another thing, you know, people who are starving, let me tell you something. I see why well, some of these people at home, they're not starving. They're not starving. In fact, a lot of these, these people ride around and there's one guy, he comes by my house and he's riding a bike and it's a kid's bike. I said, you know, where'd you steal that from? Because why would a grown man like you, you're in your 30s and you're riding around on a bike like that? Where'd you get that bike? You know, I know what they do. It's like they're ripping kids' bikes off, for crying out loud. <laughs> you know, those, people got to be start being naive about the situation. And of course, we, again, we all want to help people, but we want to help. So here's the bad thing. And I read an article in the Globe, Boston Globe, and uh, and they they did a thing on homelessness. This is very important. They did a thing, and it's funny. The Globe is very liberal in their politics. So just give you because I'll tell you why this it's it, it leads to why the reporter said what what they said in the article. So they the reporter said they interviewed these people and all these people to a man 
and a woman all blame themselves for their homeless situation. Every one of them. And the writer dismissed what they said. So I guess there's no such thing as volitional responsibility. And they're admitting to the fact that their, their, their bad decisions have led to them being on the street. So if I, I, I know this guy, uh, he's a homeless guy. He's, he's a nice guy, but he's, he's got problems, drug and alcohol problems. And he, he lived, I found him in the shed out here in, my, in, my back, in the next house next door to me. And you know, I talked to him and his name's John and he, his mother lives down the street. I said, why are you out in a shed when your mother's down the street? Well, she likes to be alone. You know, the real issue is the mother is probably so sick of dealing with the kid, and his, the guy and his alcohol, drug problems, won't let him in the house anymore because she's learned that it's called tough love, we call it. So, you know, you know here's the thing. There are people who legitimately need help that, that are not able to get the help quickly, and the Globe brought this out, because, because the state has been so sick and tired of getting uh, the system being exploited by these people that I mentioned before, that they made it really difficult to really get help. You gotta really go through a lot of hoops and do things because people have abused the system, so it makes it difficult for the people who are just actually legitimately need help. So that's the bad thing. So another reason why we shouldn't just uh, turn a blind eye to what these these people are doing, trying to exploit the system. And not, you know, you get you can get drug and alcohol problem help for that, that stuff. Every city I know has it. You can get it if you want it. And, but they, and a lot of these people don't want it. You know, they want to continue in their drug and alcohol problems because they're going to have people who feel who are on an ego trip or they they feel guilty because they have money in these people in the street and uh, and they'll they'll get money from these people who think they're doing good when in reality they're actually creating a bigger problem. So I just wanted to throw that in because we're going to talk about the subject of love. So love must have discernment. So we must not be naive as to what's going on. You know, here's another reason. When you talk to somebody who's homeless, you know, ask their name, you know, talk to them. See, find out. How in the world are they get in this situation, you know? And then you'll find a lot of times, a lot of them will, will, you know, will pull, you know, pull, you know, we used to say BS you in Massachusetts, okay? It's <laughs> like, all right, so it's like, all right, because uh, you can tell, you know, that they, they, it's like, come on. I say, what's the real reason? And they'll tell you a lot of times. Maybe they won't, and they'll walk away. But, um, you know, so don't, um, you know, dehumanize these people. They have names, they are people, and Jesus died for them, and we want to help them. But, you know, throwing money at them is not, in America, we think throwing money at people is, is going to solve the problem. It doesn't. And here's the other thing. More importantly, as a Christian, that friend I told you I, I care very much about, and he was helping people. I said, you know, you know, even, I said, let's say, Mike, I said, I said to the person, I said, you know, let this person I know and I love. And I said, look at, you know, the most important thing you have is the gospel. You know, in the book of Acts, you know, you know Peter, James, John said, we don't, silver or gold we don't have. You know, we can, but we have the gospel, you know, in the name of Jesus, you can, you can walk again, you know. And so these people can cure their, or get overcome their drug and alcohol problems and associated mental illnesses uh, if we give them the gospel. That's what they really need. They need a relationship with Jesus and they need to get the spirit. So anyways, so let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves and determine if we're in fellowship with God. Because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we know we commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess the sins, or confess our sins to the Father, He, God, the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5, 18 to be filled with the Spirit. And Colossians 3.16, to let the word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing, and distracting to you, do it. First Peter 5.7 says, 
Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation you're working on behalf in eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. We just thank you, Father, for the technology, people taking advantage of it. We pray there be no problems with the recordings, the video, and the audio, and uploading these things to our various websites, podcasts, immediate platforms that you've given us. I pray you protect them from the enemy and use them mightily. And same with the YouTube streaming video. Thank you for the service that they provide. I also thank you for those who might be listening to the class live or to a later date through recordings. I pray, Father, by the power of Spirit, you'll help your people to learn, understand, and apply what's being taught to concentrate. Please break down any barriers that the enemy might put up that would hinder that from happening. And also help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I pray you, the Spirit would empower me to deliver your full counsel to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power so that your people can continue that's so they can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment because your word says that uh, man does not live on bread alone but from every word that proceeds out of your mouth. So, Father, we pray for this uh, service in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read it again from the Net Bible today and uh, we'll read the whole chapters we've been doing and then we'll, uh, before we look at verse 15 in detail, and we'll also uh, study the, the second, uh, read the second chapter from my translation as well, which reflects my interpretation, of course. And so, as I s said before, today will be the fourth of five hours in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. The reason why so many hours to finish this verse is because of the content. Now, today, we'll be, uh, we, when we just talked about, uh, uh, in the last class, that uh, about racial identity. In fact, uh, what was the title of our last night? Yeah, racial identity is maintained in the new humanity. And we pointed out the new humanity is uh, Jesus Christ as the head of this new humanity in the church uh, as the, the body of Christ is the new humanity. And so we see that uh, Ephesians 2.15 talks about the fact that racial identity is maintained in the new humanity. A Jew still remains a Jew and a Gentile still remains a Gentile. A woman still remains a woman, a man still remains a man. Okay. Um, the so what we do see that in the text of Ephesians chapter one verses three to Ephesians two ten uh, also supports the interpretation that racial identity is maintained in the new humanity, and uh, this will constitute our hundred fifteenth hour in Ephesians. So without further ado, let's get right to it. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Look at Ephesians chapter two verse one. It says, "And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and which you formerly lived according to this world's present path." according to the ruler of the kingdom of the year, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives and the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, 
having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed on the body by human hands, that you at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who used to be far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility. When he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees, he did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached a peace to you and who were far off and peace to those who were near, so that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household because you've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, uh, before we read from my translation of that same chapter, uh, remember, Ephesians was written by Paul in approximately between 66, 60 and 62 AD during his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, Paul is definitely the author, and this contrary to those who believe in a pseudonymous writer. Uh, the, the early church did not be, believe in pseudonymity. In fact, Irenaeus, a church father, said on baptism, his work on baptism, that they removed a man from, uh, from who was posing as Paul and writing with church. And he was trying to increase the fame of Paul. So he even had good attentions, but they removed him. Paul, uh, we see that in 2 Thessalonians 2, those who studied 2 Thessalonians with me, uh, 2 and 3, he, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he was saying that the, uh, there, he wanted to uh, reassure uh, the Thessalonian Christian community that they were not going through the day of the Lord. And he says, and even if, and one of the things he says is, even if somebody writes a letter that's allegedly from us and saying that the day of the Lord has begun, you're to reject it. And then he puts it at the end of the letter, he, puts his, he mentions his authenticating mark on the letter, which would protect against forgeries, people posing as him. So right there, he doesn't want, a, he didn't believe in pseudonymous writing. He didn't believe in pseudonymity. The early church never did. And so the recipients of this letter also uh, are not just the Ephesian Christian community, uh, because the word Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 1 is not in the best and oldest manuscripts. Uh, and so uh, we also see there's no personal greetings uh, which we would expect since Paul spent three years in, in Ephesus, according to Acts 18, 19, and 20. And so, uh, so therefore, we see also that um, this uh, it's been known by some as the letter to the Laodiceans. Paul men mentions of it, the letter to the Laodiceans. And I believe, and many scholars do believe as well, that that's actually the contents of Ephesians. In fact, M M Martian, a heretic, said what we call Ephesians today, he saw it as addressed to the Laodiceans. And so... Uh, and so Paul says, the letter of the Laodiceans, you should exchange, receive that, read that, and you give the, your, the letter I gave you, Colossians, and give it to them. So, uh, so therefore, for these reasons, I believe, that obviously, that Paul's not just writing to the Ephesian Christian community, but all the Christian communities throughout the various Romans, uh, provinces of the Roman province of Asia, provinces in the Roman province of Asia, various cities of the province of Asia and towns. So he's writing to various Christian communities in the various cities and towns of the Roman province of Asia. Now, uh, we see that uh, uh, this uh, letter is very important 
it uh, the purpose of the letter is uh, is is to maintain unity between the, the the Jewish wing of the church and the Gentile wing of the church. Uh, so remember, uh, the, the church uh, is was a, is it something that is a mystery it was not known to Old Testament saints. We'll see this in Ephesians chapter three. Uh, it's composed of two races that are born again and saved through faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, we see that uh, if this is uh, this was very shocking to the early church. Uh, remember, um, Jews had nothing to do with Gentiles uh, because of the, the law, the dietary regulations of the law, which prohibited them from eating uh, unclean and, and animals. And those unclean animals were associated with the worship of the various pagan gods of the Canaanites. And that's why God had dietary regulations for them, so they would not be uh, be um, get involved with the worship of these false gods that the Canaanites worshipped, which is actually the, actually the creation of Satan and the fallen angels. And so that's why he had the dietary regulations. And so Peter, in Acts chapter ten, had to be told in a vision three times that he could, with you know to eat clean uh, unclean animals. And uh, he said, "I can't do that, Lord. I've never seen. I've never eaten anything unclean in my life." And God says, well, what I declared clean is clean. And uh, so in Mark 7, Jesus did away with the dietary regulations. And we see that uh, Peter realized in Acts chapter 10 that he could go into a Gentile's home now. And so that's what he did. And he gave Cornelius the gospel. And like the Jewish believers on the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD, recorded in Acts chapter 2, the Gentiles and Cornelius' family, first they received the baptism of the Spirit, uh, according to that Acts chapter 10. So that created a problem because there were a lot, Paul mentions this problem as far as the dietary regulations in Romans, as we pointed out. Remember we studied that years ago, Romans 14. And the weak there were primarily those Jewish believers who thought that they were still under the dietary regulations of the law, like Peter thought he was. And uh, and so uh, the strong were those who believed that what Jesus taught them, that they could eat all foods. They had that conviction. So, he, uh, he wanted to maintain unity. He didn't want them dividing over uh, the matters of eating and drinking. So uh, this is so fellowship was a, a new thing between Jewish and Gentile people. And we found it in the church. So uh, this is, uh, so the, the Paul's very concerned like that uh, this unity might be, must be maintained in the Christian community between Jewish and Gentile Christians. Okay? Now, so there's, uh, this is very important. So, um, so that everything, so the, the purpose of this letter is really, as we saw in, in our introduction, and, we'll, and we pointed out in the first three verses of chapter four of Ephesians, that uh, Paul wanted to maintain the unity of the spirit, and he had to do that through the practice of the command to love one another. So we have the unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians uh, through the baptism of the spirit at justification, and we will see it in a perfective sense in a resurrection body of the rapture of the church, which is, uh, it's, which is imminent. And we're also gonna we can see it experientially in the church when we practice the command to love one another. So uh, we see here that uh, we'll be talking about that in this this uh, particular lesson here today. So let's look at my translation again of Ephesians chapter two. Now, correspondingly, Paul writes, even though each and every one of you, and it's Gentile Christians right here that he's talking about with the you, as we'll see, and I pointed out in the past. So he says, now correspondingly, even though each and every one of you Gentiles as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of 
the sovereign ruler, namely the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the earth's atmosphere, specifically the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience. Then he says, among whom each and every one of us, us as we'll see, and we pointed this out in the past, is speaking of the, uh, Paul and these Gentile Christians. Paul's representing the Jewish wing of the church. So among whom each and every one of us, Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church, also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh. Specifically, by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh, in other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who were objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest of the human race correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love, with which he loved each and every one of us. Even though each and every one of us as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit are saved because of grace. Specifically, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be raised with him. Correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. So, as I pointed out in my translation, it's more interpretive and this is never more reflected than the way I translate the prepositional phrase en auto or en Cristo Jesu or en Cristo, uh, which is which are in himself or in Christ or in Christ Jesus, uh, because I look at the preposition there and as causal and also that Paul's using the figure of metonymy, meaning uh, Christ is put for faith in him at justification and union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. So in other words, those prepositional phrases are actually shorthand. Now, uh, and I'm not the first person that's noticed that. It's pretty obvious. So verse 7 says, He did this, the Father did this, so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of each and every one of us, because of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you is a corporate unit, a save, because of grace by means of faith, in other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It does not originate from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each and every one of us are his creative workmanship. For each and every one of us has been created by means of our faith in and union identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. So notice again, uh, and we'll be talking about this in this class and we talked about it in the past. Uh, we see, notice he's going back and forth from the we and you and us and, and uh, you, y'all. You know, he, he, first person plurals, we, us, where the second person plurals, the yous are all of you. Uh, and so, who are the reference of those, We, as we pointed out in the past, and we'll talk about it again today. Uh, the Jews are obviously Gentile Christians, the recipients of this letter, because the next verse tells us that. It says in verse 11, Therefore, each and every one of you, as a corporate, must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision, 
by the, those who receive the designation circumcision, the Jews, with respect to the human body performed by human hands. Each one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each of you used to be alienated from the na nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing, and consequently, each of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So again, with the we's and the you's, or us's and you, uh, the word you there is, is in the plural. Everywhere we go, I translate it in a distributive sense. It's not only speaking of the Gentile Christian community that he's writing to in the Roman province of Asia as a corporate unit, but it's also talking about the fact that there's no exceptions. This is true. Everything he says about them is true of each and every one of them. And now us is where the big critical problem is. Who's the us speaking of? And the, who's the referent there, as we'll talk about and have talked about, as I said in the past. So verse 13 says, however, just like, remember we pointed out, just like, Paul, the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 talk about the pre-justification, pre pre-conversion state of the Gentile Christians. Uh, verse 12 did it as well. But in relation to the their status in relation to the nation of Israel. So now, just verse 13 does what verse 4 does in chapter 2. Verse 13 uh, accentuates, he brings out the pre-conversion state, pre-justification state of his readers in order to accentuate the grace and love of God. And of course, the grace of God flows from his attribute of love, the function of his attribute of love. And grace is unmerited blessings. Verse 13, however, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you, as a corporate unit who were formerly far away, had been brought near by means of the blood belonging to the same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely by causing both groups, Jewish and Gentile, to be one. Specifically, by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that's the Mosaic law, that is that which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. Now here we know verse 15 identifies specifically, he's talking about the Mosaic law. In other words, by nullifying by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws in order that he might cause the two, the two races, to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two and the two with God on, on uh, Saturday. This coming Saturday, we'll be looking at that final assertion in the verse in detail. Now verse 16 says, In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross, consequently, he, the Lord, put to death the hostility between the two and the two with God by means of faith in himself at justification, and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he as a result became proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, each and every one of us as a corporate unit, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one Spirit to the presence of the Father, indeed therefore, and before we look at verse 19, notice he says that uh, each and every one of us, namely both groups, so uh, both groups, so when Paul uses we or us, he's talking about the, uh, himself and the Gentile Christian community with him being the representative of the Jewish Christian community because he's a Jew, Jewish believer. And so notice he, 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 the association between 
the first person plural form there at the beginning of verse 18 and identifying that us as both both groups, Jew and Gentile, which is supporting my interpretation. Verse 19, therefore, he says in verse 19, each and every one of you is a corporate unit, are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is foreign citizens, but rather each and every one of you is a corporate unit, are fellow citizens with the saints, that is members of God's household, because each and every one of you is a corporate unit, have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel to each of you by the apostles as well as the prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, Christ Jesus, is the chief cornerstone. Sorry about that. It, it, uh, I do that from time to time. Sorry about that. So he says, uh, he, simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone. Then we have verses 21 and 22 to finish off the chapter. On the basis of this temple, or this, uh, this building, being, spiritual building, being continually fitted, inextricably together, by means of justification by faith and union identification with Him. The whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith, union and identification with the Lord. Notice the growth is related to appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union identification with Christ, all of you without exception are being built together, notice the present tense, into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. And you appropriate the omnipotence of the Spirit when you appropriate by faith what the Spirit's teaching us in Scripture, namely that you're crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with Jesus Christ. So, as I said before, our lesson today in the fourth and uh, fourth of five hours in Ephesians 2.15, we'll be noting that the text of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, supports the interpretation that racial identity is maintained in the new humanity. And the new humanity, again, is the church with its head, Jesus Christ. Now, we see that, as we noted in our last class, that this, in the, in the, also in the last previous lessons, we noted that there's three assertions, uh, several assertions in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. The second one is a purpose clause, as we noted. And that presents the purpose of Jesus Christ nullifying the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws by means of his human nature, as we saw in verse 14. Now, this purpose clause states that it, he did this in order that he might cause both Jewish and Gentile Christians to be created into one new humanity. He accomplished this by means of their faith in himself and justification, that's how it took place, and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit, which also took place at justification. Now, we also pointed this out in the last class as well. It's ex and we were in Romans 11 to show you this. It's extremely important that the reader, you and I, understand that Paul's not teaching that there's no Jewish section of the church or that the racial distinctions between the Jewish and Gentile races no longer exist. In other words, the racial identity of both races is not abolished or done away. When Paul asserts that Jesus Christ created both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities into one new humanity, and a perfect example of that, as I've been bringing out in the previous two classes, I knew this guy who was a pastor and uh, he uh, believed you had to live like a Jew, and he had you know looked like a rabbi. He had he had carried around with his old test his Old Testament uh, Hebrew with him, Bible Hebrew Bible, and he had you know his, the bushy beard, long beard, like he was an Orthodox, Orthodox Jew. And uh, he told me I was like, so uh, my my response to be to people like him, and that's not a new thing that's been going around. Uh, he's deceived into thinking he's got, he's got false doctrine there. He's misunderstanding the scriptures, and if he would study this class, he'd know that I'm. That, that he, he this is the case. 
So I just made you the made a point up here that the racial identity of both races is not abolished or done away when Paul asserts that Jesus Christ created both Jewish and Gentile Christian communities into one. And it doesn't mean that the Gentiles now are Jewish either, we could say. So he's not Jewish. He's a, he's a Gentile. <laughs> the Jewish people probably laugh when they see this guy. Oh, you're a Gentile and you're, you're dressed like a Jew, Orthodox Jew. How interesting. They probably thought he was a fool. <laughs> that really, that's probably what they thought. Uh, but uh, so I would say to him, well, well, look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, the Judaizers, who are Jewish Christians, who believed in Jesus, okay, they, they saw the Gentiles getting saved, and they told the Gentiles that they must get under the law. In other words, they must live like a Jew. And the Jews, their life, the Israelites, their life was governed by the Mosaic law. Their social, economic, political life, everything, was uh, religious life was all governed by the law. So, uh, the, what did the Peter, James, and John say in Acts 15 to to the Judaizers, and they sided with Paul. No, they don't have to keep the law. And that, in other words, they don't have to live like a Jew. So this guy is walking around like a Jew with his Hebrew Bible. Good thing he's hanging out with. He's got his Hebrew Bible, but there's also a Greek New Testament. Just foolishness. You know, this is where you, you don't pay attention and do you, you know, with interpretation, and you can get into false doctrine. False doctrine leads to crazy behavior and bad, sinful behavior many times as well, obviously. So. Uh, we must be careful in interpreting and uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, we see, again, my point on the board that we touched on on Tuesday. It's extremely important that you and I, as the reader, understand that Paul is not teaching in Ephesians 2.15, that there's no Jewish section of the church, or that the racial distinctions between the Jewish and Gentile races no longer exist, or that Gentiles now are Jews. In other words, the racial identity of both races is not abolished or done away when Paul asserts that Jesus Christ created both Jewish and Gentile Christians into one new humanity. What it does mean, as we pointed out on Tuesday, is that Jews remain Jews and Gentiles remain Gentiles with all the distinctions and differences. And so there is unity, a unity with distinctions. And uh, so God likes diversity. All you have to do is look at creation to see that and look at the races, you know, Look at all the races, all the ethnicities, language groups. He loves that. And that's very important that we understand. So why would it be any different when it comes to the church? So the reason for my point here on the board is for this all, is that both Jew, both Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and Romans 11, which we looked at in, on uh, Tuesday, teach that the Gentile Christian is united to the Jewish Christian. If you read Romans chapter 11, look, it says in verse 13, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, seeing that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I can provoke my people, the Jewish people, to jealousy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, if the first portion, and that's speaking of Abraham and the promises given to him, of the dough offered is holy, then the whole batch is holy. And if the root is holy, so too are the branches. Now, if some of the branches, and he's talking about um, the, the Jewish people who are unregenerate, were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, which is talking about the Gentile, okay, were grafted in among the Jews and participated in the richness of the olive root. And the olive tree, as we pointed out in Scripture, is symbolic of the Jewish the nation of Israel. Do not boast over the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So, 
uh, then you will say the branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be arrogant, but fear. So notice that they were engrafted in. And you didn't do that. A wild olive shoot to <laughs> an olive tree. That's contrary to nature. Why did Paul do that? He knew this. He, the reason why he did this is because he's trying to emphasize the miraculous nature of this taking place. That Jewish believers would be united to Gentile, uh, J- Jewish and Gentile believers would be united with each other to faith in Jesus and the baptism of the Spirit. So, uh, I'll flip it back to Ephesians 2.15 for you. So, as we keep going in my notes, we see that the uh, this interpretation that Paul in Ephesians 2.11-22 and Romans 11 is not teaching that there's no Jewish section of the church or that racial identity of both races is abolished or done away or that Gentiles are now Jews is supported within the text of Ephesians 1 verse 3 all the way to Ephesians 2 verse 10. Specifically, this interpretation is supported by the fact that Paul employs the second person plural in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 but then switches to the first person plural in Ephesians 2.10 as we read. And in fact, I've addressed this switch in our study of Ephesians 1.1 to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. So we spent a class on that. So if you notice in Ephesians 2.8, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. And that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from work so that no one can boast. And then he, and so then verse 10 he says, For we, why didn't he say you? For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. So why is he switching back and forth? And so uh, it's interesting. The use there, okay, the use, the, the word you there in your Bibles, it's, and you see this in the epistles, it's, it's actually always pretty much in the, not all the time, unless Paul's talking to an individual, the writer of the New Testament is talking about an individual. It's talking about a, a community of Christians. And it actually literally means all of you. And you can actually, as I do, translate it each and every one of you because the words not only, the second person plural is not only speaking of them as a corporate unit, but is emphasizing no distinctions, no exceptions, excuse me. So that's that's why I translate it the way I do my translation. So it might be make it a little more wordier, but it's, I believe, more accurate. And I believe it's what Paul intended or the writer of scripture. This is true of all Christians, he's saying. So as we noted, Several times in our studies of Ephesians up to this point, many expositors contend that the referent of the first person plurals in Ephesians 1-3 to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 is Jewish believers, and the Gentile believers are addressed with the second person plural in Ephesians 1-13. Okay? So some think the, the we's and the ours are speaking of Jews, Jewish believers, and the you's, of course, that's easy, as uh, Gentile believers, because they're identified as Gentiles in Ephesians 2-11 as we read. However, I believe that the referent, what these, these first person plurals and second person plurals are referring to, who they're referring to, I believe that the referent of the first person plurals is both Jewish and Gentile believers, with Paul representing the Jewish remnant in the church. And the referent of the second person plurals is the Gentile Christian community. So when he says we or our, in this letter, up to this point in this letter, he's speaking of the Jewish people led, uh, represented by himself, and the Gentile Christians. The Jewish believers represented by Paul and the Gentiles. When he says you, all of you, each and every one of you as as a corporate unit, speaking of the Gentiles exclusively, the Gentile wing of the church. So, from the beginning of the epistle, Paul makes no distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, If you recall, in in Ephesians 1.1, 
He makes no distinctions between Jewish and Gentile believers, but simply addresses them both as saints, as well as faithful in this verse. And then, in Ephesians 1-2, he addresses them with a second person plural form of all of you, or you, as you see it in your translations. And he does this very same thing in Ephesians 1-13, as we saw. After addressing the recipients of this epistle in Ephesians 1-3-12 with the first person plurals, he then addresses them in Ephesians 1-13 with the second person plural. And he then switches right back to the first person plural in Ephesians 1-14 to address the recipients of this letter. So he's, va- he's vacillating. Now, is he confused? No. If Paul is not making a distinction between Jewish and Gentile believers by switching from the first person plural to the second person plural on two occasions in this letter when addressing its recipients, then why is he doing this? Well, I believe that he employs the second person plural in Ephesians 1-2, but then switches to the first person plural, we or our, in Ephesians 1-3-12. He's doing this because he's simply attempting to identify with the recipients of his epistle who are Gentile Christians. In other words, he's trying to express his solidarity with them. This is indicated by the fact that he addresses them as Gentiles and Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and he, of course, was a Jewish Christian. So when he makes this switch in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it is for the same reason. Or in other words, he, as a Jewish believer, is demonstrating his solidarity with the Gentile Christian community. Though Paul never mentions any specific problem or problems taking place within the Christian community in this epistle, it can be inferred from the contents of the letter that he was concerned that the Christian community remained united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. How do we know this? Well, it's indicated by the fact that Paul opens the practical application of his teaching in the first three chapters by commanding the recipients of this letter to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And this would be accomplished by living in a manner worthy of their calling and by practicing humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance of one another through the practice of the command to love one another, which Paul instructs them to do in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. So it says in there, in these verses, Ephesians 1, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I therefore, the prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling with which you have been called. Notice the use, these Gentile Christians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now don't miss this. He emphasizes the unity that's in the Godhead and the body of Christ. There's one body, one spirit, just as you two were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. So go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15. So unity is the first major overriding theme in the Ephesian epistle. Because as we noted, this is the purpose of the letter. And a lot of people, we studied this in our introduction, when it comes to this book, there's not a consensus among scholars and expositors as the purpose of this letter. And uh, I believe, and I have, the more I go study this book, every clause, every word, verse, and uh, it's pretty clear to me. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's there. It's there. And so, um, for the reasons I've been giving as I've been going along with this book. So unity is the first major overriding theme in this letter. And why? Because as we noted, that's the purpose of the letter. Again, Paul was very concerned, like he was in the book of Romans, concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. It would, because it's important because 
it would be very easy for Jewish believers and Gentile believers to go back the way they were prior to their justification and not associate with each other. And, and the law uh, was a source of division. The dietary regulations of the law were a source of division. Also, the Jews also thought they were better than the Gentiles because they received the law and the Jew Gentiles didn't. And of course, John the Baptist and Jesus blew that away for them. So, uh, so, this very, so he's very concerned because this is important because it's going to serve as a witness against Satan and the fallen angels because the church composed of Jewish and Gentile believers, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, from all walks of life and from all nations will reign with Christ over the, during his millennial reign over the earth. Okay? And this God wants is, is telling the fallen angels, you will be dispossessed. I will remove you eventually with these people that I have regenerated and identified with my son, placed in union with him. So, again, Paul was concerned that the Christian community remain united experientially through the practice of the command to love one another. They were united in a positional sense through their union identification with Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and session of the writing of the Father. And consequently, this set up the guarantee of being united in a perfective sense when they received their resurrection bodies at the rapture or resurrection of the church. And this unity in a positional sense is taught in the first three chapters of the letter. And it sets up the potential to experience this unity when interacting with each other, which is accomplished through obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ's command in John 13, 33 and 34 and 15, 12, to love one another as he has loved them. In fact, Paul makes a point of mentioning this unity in a positional sense in relation to Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians' interaction with each other. They would experience that, uh, that which is true of them positionally through the practice of the command to love one another. So therefore, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, when Paul employs the first person plural, we or our, to address the recipients of this letter, he's using an inclusive we, we call it in Greek grammar, which refers to both himself as the author and the recipients of this letter. By switching from the second person plural to the first person plural, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, and then back again to the second person plural to the first person plural, in verses 13 and 14 of that chapter, Paul as a Jewish believer, is attempting to identify with Gentile Christians. In other words, people, he's expressing his solidarity and promoting unity among Jews and Gentiles in the Christian community in the Roman province of Asia. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul again employs the second person plural, but then switches back to the first person plural. And verses 3 to the first assertion and verse 5. Paul does this for the same reason as he did in Ephesians 1, chapter 1, verses 2 through 12 and 13 and 14. This interpretation is supported by the fact that the concessive clause in Ephesians 2, 5 is nearly identical to the one in Ephesians 2, 1, whose thought we noted is resumed and completed in Ephesians by the statement, soon as o poison, soon as o poison, to Christo, which I translated, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ, or as the modern translations translate it, yeah, he made us alive with Christ, together with Christ. So, as we noted, the only difference between these two concessive clauses is that the one in Ephesians 2.1 employs the accusative second person plural form of the personal pronoun so, which refers to the recipients of this letter, you. On the other hand, the one in verse 5 employs the accusative first-person plural form of the personal pronoun ego, 
which is we or our. That refers, as we pointed out, to both Paul and the recipients of this letter. Both groups, Jew and Gentile Christians, have been made alive with Christ, and that means they've been raised and seated with Christ, identified with him in his death, his resurrection and session at the right hand of the Father through the baptism of the Spirit. So as we close, both the concessive clause in Ephesians 2.1 and the one here in Ephesians 2.5 are both completed by the same declarative statement in verse 5. Therefore, this indicates that Paul, who is a Jew, and the recipients of this letter, who were Gentile Christians, both were made alive with Christ at their justification by the Father through the baptism of the Spirit, even though they were both spiritually dead because of their transgressions. In Ephesians 2.5, Paul, a Jewish believer, is identifying with the Gentile Christians who are the recipients of this letter, and he's again attempting to promote solidarity between the two and unity between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities. Paul, again, switches from the second person plural, as we pointed out, in the B part of Ephesians 2.5, and he goes to the first person plural in verses 6 and 7 of that chapter. And lastly, he does it once again by employing the second person plural in Ephesians 2.8 and then switching to the first person plural in verse 10, as we noted. He does this again because he, as a Jewish Christian, is identifying with the recipients of this letter who are Gentile Christians according to Ephesians 2.11. So this switch is an attempt, again, to express his solidarity as a Jew, Jewish Christian, with Gentile Christians. So he wants them to know their relationship to each other, who God made them to be in Christ, and their relationship with each other. The barriers, the hostility of the law has been destroyed by Jesus and his suffering the wrath of God on the cross. Uh, and for the for the fact that we have not been able to keep the law perfectly as God ex- expects or requires, and also he, uh, so he also fulfilled the law, the righteous dem- holy demands of the law, perfectly keeping the law. So the law is not uh, a, a uh, an obstacle between the two races having fellowship with each other, and that's very very important. So the baptism of the Spirit changed the world on June of 33 A.D when it took place among Jewish believers in Jerusalem, uh, and then with Gentiles receiving the baptism of the Spirit, uh, with Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10, and, it'll, and it continues to take place, the baptism of the Spirit, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, uh, you're, uh, whatever, whatever position you have in life, if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit identifies you with Jesus and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father, and that makes you part of the new humanity, the bride of Christ. You're members of the body of Christ, Christ being the head. So you are going to reign with Christ for a thousand years during his millennial reign, dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels, and they don't like that. And But uh, that's the way God has made it to be. And so uh, the Lord is uh, is doing a mighty thing right now in our day and age. It's very exciting and too mad. Um, many of us... Uh, don't really appreciate what God's doing in the world as we speak. And so, uh, very, very important. So uh, let's uh, let's close in prayer. We'll pick this up on Saturday, same time, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. We'll see you then, Lord willing. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson be a blessing to your people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.